Hello and welcome to the Big Ben History Podcast and our latest conversation with the men in the room when Margaret Thatcher told her cabinet she was resigning in November 1990. Margaret Thatcher had few stauncher supporters than Peter Lilly, who was Secretary of State of Trade and Industry when she fell from power. He was very much one of us, dry like her on questions of the economy and just as, maybe even more so, Eurosceptic. But after she'd failed to win enough support in the leadership ballot against Michael Heseltine in November 1990 to avoid a second vote, he felt she was fatally wounded. And when he told her so, it was a painful experience. His recollections of those events start with the actual cabinet meeting when the Iron Lady called it a day. I remember particularly you know, Margaret Thatcher's appearance uh, remarks and can't remember about anything else that happened, like who said what apart from her, let alone whether I said anything. What do you remember? Uh, as I recall, we were sort of sitting quietly and waiting for her to come in. She came in. She began her remarks. She hesitated, appeared almost to be going to burst into tears. Someone said something helpfully, but then she picked up and ploughed on. Uh, and uh, uh, completed her remarks. I imagine was it all I can remember. <laughs> yeah, the, the fact that you can't remember it was it a pretty unpleasant experience. Yeah, it was very sad. I mean, she was nearly in tears. I think I was nearly in tears. So uh, I wasn't sort of sitting down and thinking, "Gosh, this is a great historic moment. I must record it all." I just wished it wasn't happening. And this followed um, an extraordinary three days uh, and um, some one-to-one meetings the night before where she'd asked her cabinet what she should think she did, should do individually. Do you remember your face-to-face meeting with her? That I do remember vividly, yes. I was one of the first called in because um, I was a, was an avid diehard, that's right, and I think they hoped I would say um, it's all going swimmingly, plough on, uh, which I'd have liked to be able to say. But uh, I hadn't, for some reason, discussed with um, my cabinet colleagues. I discussed with some younger junior ministers. Um, and I was rather cynically thinking that my colleagues would all say what they wanted her or what they thought she wanted them to say. And so... I had to tell her the truth because I was afraid no one else would. So I was rather, I rather brutally said, um, I thought it was inconceivable she would win on the second ballot. And there was a long pause, uh, and someone you know, sort of probed. I don't think she asked me. I think the whether it was Charles uh, Paul who was there, sort of probed a bit, and I said, you know, I, I thought my feelings were that people were beginning to slip away rather than <clears throat> rally around in terms of support. Uh, and she was obviously deeply hurt. Uh, I, I mean, actually, I should begin. What, what I said at first was, Prime Minister, I will support you, come what may, whatever you do, to the hilt all the way. But I think it's unlikely you'll win second ballot. 
so she had no doubt of my support, but not of my, um, uh, but I couldn't bring her big good news. And that was uh, a sh- clearly a shock to her. And must be very difficult for you as well as, uh, as someone very loyal to her. Yeah. And with the benefit of hindsight, I wish I hadn't been quite so brutal because, of course, other people um, didn't live down to my expectations. They did tell them much the same thing. So it wasn't necessary for me to be quite as forthright as I was. Uh, uh, and that suggests that in her memoirs, she 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 sort of got jumped to the conclusion that you'd all agreed a party line, as it were. From what you're suggesting, that wasn't the case. Certainly wasn't the case in my case. Um, there had been, I gather, the uh, famous meeting in um, was it Alan Clark's house, somebody's, which Tristan Gallagher. Uh, I think Tristan Gallagher. Yeah, 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 Tristan Gallagher. I wasn't invited to that and didn't participate, so I didn't know what was going on there. And just, I was rereading her autobiography yesterday. She also seems to have got the impression that you wouldn't help with um, the drafting of her no confidence speech. Is that an incident you recall as well? Yes, I got a phone call. That must have been before this. Uh, I got a phone call from Paris uh, asking me if I'd take part. And I'd said, yes, I would. But they must tell her that she should come back because things were not going well in uh, London. And I did contribute to her speech, and she used some of my lines. Um, but there was uh, some misunderstanding in her memoirs. Uh, and I went, I was the only cabinet minister who went to the launch of her memoirs, and by then I'd seen the relevant phrases in it and agreed with her that they created the wrong impression, and she... Agreed I put out a press release, which no one took any notice of at the time, clarifying that I had, in fact, contributed to her uh, resignation speech and supported that, but that I had, uh, I desire that the, the message be conveyed to her that you know, her presence was needed back in London wasn't the same as saying, um, and that things were not going well in London, wasn't the same as saying that I wouldn't help with speech, but that's apparently how it sort of partly came over to her. Uh, and we'll go back to those events in London, but but your view was just with that result, there was simply no way she could win, even though she had won the ballot technically. Um, correct. I mean, I met a couple of backbenchers, uh, admittedly not a large and significant sample, but who um, had voted for a first time round and thought now she was too wounded and vote for other people uh, on the second round. And uh, my sort of instinct told me that that was how quite a lot of people would react, sadly. And you mentioned things weren't going well in London. Um, everybody I speak to say her initial campaign wasn't wasn't the best. Is that is that your assessment too? It was dreadful. Um, it needed her to be present, to um, see people. And, you know, Michael Heseldine was seeing everybody. He offered me a job. Oh, no, he didn't offer me a job, but he sort of indicated that I'd be a very important person in his administration, you know. Um, And it needed that sort of things. Politicians are um, quite pliable clay, uh, but they need the the potter there to mould them. Uh, And because her team were overconfident, 
they didn't uh, feel the need to deploy her in the way she should have been deployed because she's extremely persuasive and uh, she would have made that difference, I think, if she had been there. And did that overconfidence come from her? No, I think it came from them. Um, Obviously, uh, what was his name? Uh, Uh, Peter Morrison. Peter Morrison, yes, was um, not the person she should have put in in charge of it. Um, The... uh, she put, in fact, um, not him, but a, a couple of wets in charge who, you know, who's, who weren't really giving it any welly. Uh, so that was my impression. I wasn't, you know, they didn't even deploy people like me to lobby uh, you know, people. If a proper campaign, you have a complete checklist of every member of the party, uh, where they stand, any wobbly you find who their friends are, you deploy their friends to stiffen their backbones. And that didn't seem to be happening on any scale. And were you aware of that contemporaneously? You saw that was going, was not happening? Yes. I mean, because it was an absence of something, it only became apparent uh, to me quite late in the day. Uh, but uh, I think other people who were closer to the centre of it realised that things were not going well. And that too filtered out in conversations in the tea room. And had there been a proper campaign, had she put her uh, her elbow to it, as it were, uh, history could have been diff- very different. She could have won and fought the next election. She could certainly have won. And it's hard to see that she could then have been toppled before the next election. Uh, so she could have fought it. And it's hard to believe that... Um, Kinnock would have beaten her. Extraordinary, really, isn't it? It's sort of almost an, Do you see it almost as an accident? Well, life is uh, full of chance, it would appear to us, chance events, no doubt. Divine Providence has played its part, but it didn't seem to be uh, playing the part on the side I wanted. <laughs> and, and looking at the longer term, the longer term causes, um, uh, she'd clearly uh, uh, um, irritated more and more of her colleagues, um, uh, but there was also um, ideological disagreements with her colleagues as well. W- which do you think was the bigger problem, her personality or her beliefs? Well, I put it down to policies. It, um, it was she had a battle, a major uh, battle on Europe, and which had to be won. And, but she'd chosen to fight a battle on the poll tax, which had hugely weakened her uh, because you know, it affected individual members' constituents, constituencies. Um, and you know, they might be loyal to that rights, but if they suddenly feel that their constituency is at risk, then uh, they start thinking, how can we resolve this? And maybe a different leader would have a different policy and we wouldn't have to go through all this. So it was the... That the unnecessary battle on the poll tax was, uh, I think, the undoing. She hadn't gone through that. She would been had been strong enough to win on the European front and uh, might not even have been that challenge. It certainly wouldn't have got nearly as far as it did. But you think on the big picture that Europe was absolutely the heart of it? Yeah. Yes. 
because I mean, one of the, the sort of precipitous events was the falling out with Jeffrey Howe, and some might see that as more personal than ideological. Um, no, it, it had a personal element in it. I, I, I used to work for Jeffrey Howe uh, before I uh, worked for Margaret Thatcher before I was an MP. I used to write his speeches, and he sort of passed me on to Margaret to help. Uh, with her speech writing from time to time. Uh, so, I, And I'd supported him in the leadership campaign as his bag carrier in 1975. So I was quite close to him in that respect. Um, and he's a, he was a very nice, gentlemanly, old-style gentleman in many ways, who found it quite difficult to argue with a woman. Uh, and she liked to be argued with. Uh, and he would... We'd see occasionally, there was a famous occasion in Cabinet not long before he resigned when she was very aggressive towards him. Uh, and he was rather sheepish in response. I think anyone else would have snapped back at her. and uh, I mean, not snap back, it didn't need anger, but she, she liked argument. If you come back with strong arguments, she'd argue away, but she was actually mentally always recording the arguments uh, and if you won the argument she wouldn't say oh you've run Jeffrey or Peter or whoever it is uh, but she would change her position and he, he he found it difficult I think to do that and that led to sort of a, a personal friction on top of the underlying policy difference and also I think you were at the Treasury under Nigel Lawson where as that relationship disintegrated again was what was the interplay between personality and policy? Uh, uh, I, I didn't see the in, internal battles. Um, I don't think there was that personal friction. Uh, it was that the, Nigel had reached the view that uh, Nigel was a, even then a strong Eurosceptic, but he reached a view which I never quite understood, uh, that somehow if we join the exchange rate mechanism, that would be a line we could hold against the creation of a single currency. Uh, and he thought that that was the crucial battle, was to fight against a single currency, not against the exchange rate mechanism, which he thought would be useful in controlling inflation. Um, she had... Uh, different advice from Alan Walters. Uh, I just felt that she had to make a choice between him and Alan Walters. And her initial choice was effectively Alan, and then uh, eventually she lost them both. And, yeah, I mean, you remember the major government afterwards. How much of the sort of travails of the, of the next five years and of that administration were because of the manner of Margaret Thatcher's exit? Actually, I don't think it's easy to um, attribute the problems to that. It left a shadow over things, but people still uh, got on and you know, fought their battles within cabinet. But I didn't feel great rancor in those battles. Even when um, John Major referred to me and to others as the bastards. Um, but you know, it was, uh, I even joked about it with him. So it, it was uh, the problem was a policy one that 
a minority of us in the cabinet were trying to, uh, uh, if we would like us not to have signed up to the Maastricht Treaty at all, or to have aborted at birth, or failing that, it was absolutely essential to try and prevent us being signed up to a single currency. We won only on the latter thing, though that was crucial. Uh, but there were others in cabinet who wanted to sign up to a single currency. And uh, so it was policy, not personality, that was the root of the problems. Even if Mrs. Thatcher had uh, sailed off into the sunset at her own volition with universal acclaim, those problems would still have existed, those battles would still have had to be fought. What was it like working for her? Wonderful. Um, she was uh, incredibly energetic, so she suffused you with energy. It was a sort of infectious energy. She loved to argue, and a lot of people didn't understand that. Um, I'd, as I said before, I was going to Parliament, I'd written speeches and policy papers for her, so I knew her modus operandi, which is you present her with an idea, even one that she's predisposed to like, she will tear it apart. Uh, and if you can come back and bring up counter-arguments, she'll encounter them and so on. But if at the end of that debate you've convinced her that uh, actually you've thought the whole thing through and there are strong arguments, she'd take it on board. Uh, I remember one time uh, later when I was an MP, we had the No Turning Back group we invited her to dinner to discuss a pamphlet we'd written on education. She came. She'd been briefed by her officials as to all the weaknesses in this draft pamphlet. She tore into it. Uh, colleagues were a bit surprised at that, and but counter-argued. She counter-counter-argued and so on. Uh, and when they, she went away, they all said, gosh, it's true, actually. Everybody says she's arrogant. She doesn't listen. She, you know, she won't take yes for an answer. And, um, and I said, no, we deploy very good arguments. And they said, yeah, but she didn't accept them. I said, yes, of course she has. She's now going out and giving hell uh, squared to the officials who briefed her. Uh, and sure enough, she took on board and missed all the arguments in our pamphlet. But that it was this um, testing ideas to destruction, which is a very, very good way of governing. You don't take things on board unless you <clears throat> look for every conceivable weakness of it. But that did uh, confuse some people. I found it exhilarating. And, and did it become? Did you notice it becoming more and more like that as you, as uh, as her time in office lengthened? I'm certainly aware, and I think I was aware at the time that people said that. I'm not quite sure whether I noticed it myself or merely was aware of it secondhand. Uh, I didn't experience it. And obviously, I was only in the cabinet with her in her last year, so I didn't have experience of how cabinet meetings had gone prior to that. But, uh, uh, but I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that she did become more, um, perhaps more self confident that she'd got things right and others had got things wrong and was inclined to uh, assume that she'd be right next time. Uh, the one thing I was aware yeah, I suppose the one thing I was aware of was the, the poll tax, which I was uh, not at all sympathetic to. And uh, thought it was 
extremely unwise of her to plow ahead with it. Did you ever speak to her about it? No, but there were stories in the paper at one stage that she'd had various ministers of state for the poll tax, uh, and whoever it was had uh, fallen out of favour, and there was rumour that I might be asked to do it. Um, and I said to my wife, well, if she asked me to do that, I will have to tell her that I can't do it because I don't believe in it. And uh, that would mean me being sort of consigned to the back benches. But I, uh, I just have to try and uh, use it to dissuade her from ploughing on. However, I wasn't asked, so I never had to, uh, to discuss it with her one-to-one. A, a bullet dodged, perhaps. Uh, and, and just to, to, to bring it to an end, um, I, I don't even know, but there are certain friends of hers who I've spoken to, like Charles Pohl, John Gummer, who believe she would have voted Remain in a referendum uh, as a leading Brexiteer and somebody who knew her both uh, professionally and socially. What's your answer to that? Well, I've uh, heard Charles Pohl argue this, and uh, I'm just amazed. I, I don't think it's a slightest chance of her voting remain had she had the opportunity in a referendum to vote to leave she now what they really mean is that she didn't think uh in those terms uh, at that stage when she was prime minister in terms of leaving i was uh, the junior treasury minister out um representing and nigel lawson couldn't go so i was at the ministry uh, meeting of Commonwealth uh, Treasury Ministers in Cyprus when she made the Bruges speech, and I'd had no prior briefing of it, and as all the ministers assembled, they all sort of rushed up to me and said, what does it mean, this speech? It's got sort of consternation across Europe, our governments are asking us what it means. Uh, and I said, well, you must surely recognise uh, most of you have uh, represent countries which uh, have in your own lifetimes become independent. It's just Mrs. Thatcher's trying to regain British independence. Uh, oh, they all said, ah, we hadn't looked at it like that, and my officials were furious. I was not supposed to say such a thing. She would have been a lever. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm 100% certain of that. And I just, although I've had, I got uh, Charles Powell to come and speak to my constituency association. He spoke after I'd ceased to be MP, but I was present. And he was sort of arguing through this thesis, which he subsequently, I think, uh, published in a speech or article or interview. Um, it just didn't, didn't ring true to me, except as if he was referring back to would she have done it in the circumstances when she was prime minister? No, clearly she wouldn't and didn't. But uh, when things had moved on as they did, she would undoubtedly have wrote it pressure to leave. That was Peter Lilly talking to me, Ben Munro-Davis, on the Big Ben History Podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, and other main podcast providers. There you can find other conversations with the men and one woman in the room when Margaret Thatcher resigned. The music is an arrangement of Packerbell's Canon in D minor by Kevin MacLeod. Thanks for listening.